Welcome to another episode of This Week with Sabir. In today's hot seat is an incredible guest. His name is uh, David Fradden. Let me tell you a bit about him. David was classically trained as a HP product manager and was then recruited by Apple to bring the first hard disk drive on, on a PC to market and later became the Apple business unit manager at the same level as Steve Jobs. Rest in peace. Uh, he is uh, the author of Building Insanely Great Products and uh, organizing and managing insanely great products and, and widely published successful product design and management all available on Amazon. And actually, I, I, I did listen to the book, Building Insanely Great Products uh, as an audio book. And here's, here's the book cover. Definitely uh, check that out. Uh, he has trained companies like Cisco on these topics worldwide. His mission is to help uh, products succeed. And most importantly for today, welcome to the show, David. Glad to be with you. So it, you, you have had an incredible journey, you know, and, and I think our audience is going to learn a ton uh, from, from your uh, experience, from your uh, background and uh, things of that nature. I read a little bit about the bio, but I, I would love for you to give it a bit more color to kind of your background and, and, and kind of your, the beginning of your journey. Uh, how, how much time do we have? <laughs> we have 60 minutes, but we will talk about this for a short while because I want to jump into all the lessons and stuff like that so we can deliver a ton of value to our audience. Yeah, I started in uh, aeronautical technology at Cass Tech High School uh, in Detroit, Michigan, which was an honors uh, high school, and then went on to the University of Michigan uh, to uh, major in aerospace engineering. And when I got there, even though I had my private pilot's license through the, uh, in part due to the Civil Air Patrol and also due to working nine hours for every one hour of flying time at a submarine sandwich shop, uh, I was shocked that the University of Michigan did not have a flying club. So I started it, and it's still going now over 50 years later. It's trained over 5,000 pilots. Many of them are airline pilots, including the, uh, the head of the uh, Blue Angels. Uh, wow. And uh, we set it up uh, uh, with a set of values, a purpose, and a mission, uh, which I have since learned through all of my studies of the 50 years since, that when you start a company, you got to start it with a set of values and a mission or a purpose or a reason uh, or a vision, uh, because without which uh, you lose your way over time in terms of all of your decision making. And eventually, uh, the organization or the company goes out of business. So they noticed that I could organize and manage. Uh, and uh, my uh, former dean of the Aerospace Engineering School, uh, Dr. Wilbur Nelson, who wrote the book on propellers in 1948, and he was on Lyndon, President Lyndon Johnson's advisory committee for the supersonic transport, he asked me if I would be interested in organizing a nationwide student organization in favor of the American SST. And being an aerospace engineer and a pilot, I was very much in favor of accelerating literally the speed at which airplanes could transport people and things around the world. So I said yes, had no idea what I was getting into. By the time I was done with my sophomore year in college, I had testified before the U.S. House of Representatives uh, uh, Aeronautics and Astronautics uh, Space Committee uh, and had gone to meetings in my pink uh, leisure suit at the White House. Uh, and, uh, and in following years, the Secretary of the Air Force invited me to go to the Air Force Air War College. Uh, the Secretary of Defense invited me to go on uh, the Joint Civilian Orientation Conference, where we visited uh, Omaha, Nebraska, uh, Strategic Air Command, NORAD in Cheyenne Mountain, Colorado, Pensacola, Florida, Naval Training Command, uh, Ranger School in, uh, uh, I think that's in Georgia or North Carolina, uh, and then uh, Paris Island, the Marine Training uh, uh, Boot Camp, where they tried to get me to enlist. But since the uh, mound of sand sub uh, substantially outweighed me at 135 pounds, I declined that. And then we went up to the Capitol to, uh, or I went up to the Pentagon for, for briefings there. So by the time I was a, a junior in uh, college, I had three people working for me. I had 15,000 uh, student members at 40 campuses around the country. And when the SST was shot down, allegedly for uh, going to harm the environment, 
there was a strong anti-technology feeling in the United States, primarily because people did not understand what technology is, which is nothing more than the organization of knowledge for practical purposes. Nothing has changed, David. Nothing yeah. has changed. Internet thing. was coming about. Listen, internet was coming about. Everybody panicked. When when social media came about, everybody panicked. When Google came about, you know, you name it. I mean, it has not changed. Blockchain now. Like, everybody's yeah. so afraid of blockchain right now. That's called Luddites. <laughs> so uh, we changed the name to... Um, uh, Federation of Americans Supporting Science and Technology. And uh, I moved the headquarters because I couldn't get a job coming out of college uh, to uh, downtown Washington, D.C. And Andrew Mellon, the former Treasury Secretary's old mansion, I had the first floor there as my office. Uh, I had a dozen people working for me and uh, testified before Congress some more in support of a space shuttle. This helped enable the space shuttle to get funded and also to work on uh, energy independence uh, so that we would not be in the energy environmental crisis uh, that we have with our over-dependence on fossil fuels. Uh, I succeeded on the first one on the space shuttle, was not very successful on the second one because we continued to struggle to have those same uh, answers. Uh, I went on from there when I decided I couldn't be a student anymore and uh, was recruited by the Environmental Balance Association of Minnesota. Went there uh, for four years. Uh, I've never been so cold in my life. And if I see another snowflake, it better be in my martini. Uh, <laughs> and I helped pioneer the field of environmental mediation and resolved uh, three of the largest environmental disputes in the history of the country, including the uh, reserve mining dispute over taconite uh, uh, processing and uh, its impact on the water quality of Lake Superior, and for which the uh, Duluth Herald called me the Henry, Ch Henry Kissinger of northern Minnesota because of my shuttle diplomacy between Cleveland, where the headquarters of reserve was, and Washington, D.C., with our congressman and uh, the White House, and uh, Silver Bay, where the plant was located, and so forth. Uh, after doing that for a while, I got involved in independent Republican politics and ran uh, Al Quie's uh, gubernatorial campaign in the last three weeks. Now, uh, each of these experiences, the fact that I graduated from Michigan with a degree in interdisciplinary technology, interdisciplinary engineering, uh, my uh, political experience, politics is who gets what in our society, and those that choose to not play politics end up getting nothing. And then my mediation skills uh, that I developed with the environmental issues all became very valuable competencies or skill sets necessary for good product management. Uh, so HP recruited me and moved me to uh, Northern uh, California, and uh, they were having trouble citing new facilities around the country. So I handled the community relations to help them site new facilities in Colorado, in Northern uh, California, and in Washington State, outside of uh, Seattle. And um, one of the things I, I knew, and I had a word processor in my office dating all the way back to the FAST organization, is that the only department at HP in 1980 that knew how to type was the, or the journalist like myself in the uh, corporate PR department. So I deployed an internally developed word processing system running on a mini computer with terminals uh, in the department. And it turned out everything I needed to do there were the same things that needed to be done as a product manager. So I was able to move over into a, a networks division at uh, HP in product management responsible for an executive level report writer off of a relational database and also responsible for a unified user interface across uh, HP's personal computers uh, and terminals. Uh, from there, Apple recruited me, as you mentioned, and I brought the first hard disk drive to market on a, a personal computer. It was a really cheap hard disk drive. It was only $3,600, and it had a tremendous capacity of uh, five megabytes. And nobody- I remember those days. <laughs> yeah. No one at the time could ever figure out how they could ever use five megabytes. And I think I just consumed five megabytes in the last 30 seconds. Uh, <laughs> just talking. Yeah. Uh, 
Uh, they noticed I knew how to manage there, so they asked me to come over to be the group product manager in the personal computer systems division uh, for the Apple III product line, which was Apple's office or business computer, uh, correcting some of the um, issues that someone had trying to use an Apple II in an office. Like, for example, there was no uh, shift key. So if you wanted to uh, get a capital letter at the beginning of your sentence, you have to hit several keys in order for that to happen. Uh, it didn't have a letter quality printer. It didn't have enough storage to do databases and large spreadsheets. Uh, it didn't have a really good word processor, which we all had on the Apple III. But because Steve Jobs was the product manager on the Apple III and they were going to take the company public in 1980, they did it too early. And the Apple III would generally show up on the dealer's uh, doorstep uh, dead on arrival. And it turned out that not enough quality assurance testing had occurred, such that in the shipment of the product, the chips on the motherboard would work their way loose. And they found that if you just picked it up, it didn't have a fan, uh, because Steve hated the noise for the fan, and I agree with him that. So if you picked it up and dropped it onto your desk from about a foot, it would reseat the chips and the thing would run uh, smoothly. But that, of course... Uh, discouraged people a bit, along with the fact that there wasn't any software when it was introduced. Sort of like what Steve did with the Mac uh, four years later, there was very little software on the Mac when he first started started shipping. Uh, so they asked me in uh, 1983 to come over uh, and take over the product line, and then I was only on the job for about two weeks, and the hate that Steve had developed throughout the senior levels of the organization for the Apple III because he wanted to get the Apple III out of the marketplace because he felt it would compete with his uh, beloved uh, Macintosh, which he had not yet released. Mm -hmm. uh, campaigned against it. They went off in an off-site meeting, canceled the product line. Uh, and then uh, John Scully, who was the president at the time, called me into his office and asked me uh, what he should do about the fact that they had $20 million in piece parts spread from Singapore and Dallas and Cork, Ireland, where the manufacturing facilities were, since they had just canceled the product line. And that $20 million would probably be about two or $300 million in today's dollars. And the company's sales were about a little over a billion at the time. So to write off a quarter of your company's sales uh, uh, was not a wise thing to do. Mm -hmm. So John asked me uh, what I suggest we do about it. And I reminded him that he and the executive committee had made this cancellation decision without consulting with me. And I said, uh, what do you mean, pale face? And uh, he didn't know the joke. Uh, and I had to explain to him back in the 1950s, there was a television show called The Lone Ranger. And The Lone Ranger uh, had an Indian sidekick by the name of Tonto. Now, when I tell this story to um, Indian Indians from India, I have to tell them it's an American Indian, Tonto. Native, and yeah. So they're surrounded by uh, 10,000 yelling, screaming Indians. And the Lone Ranger turns to Tonto and says, Tonto, we're surrounded by 10,000 yelling, screaming Indians, and all they want to do is scalp us. What should we do, Tonto? And Tonto says, what do you mean, we, pale face? <laughs> was the menomer for, you know, the white man. Yeah. Uh, so I said, if you give me the full authority commensurate with the responsibility uh, to uh, sell and market uh, and build and develop and support Apple III's, we'll get the job done. And then I explained to him the eight steps I had to go through, through eight levels of bureaucracy within Apple, just to get a message to the salesperson on the floor of a dealer uh, so that they can affect a particular sale. So he says, okay, make me a proposal. And about 80 of us got together, contributed all the information that we had. A core group of seven uh, that I led uh, wrote an 80-page business plan covering everything, manufacturing, engineering, marketing, uh, and so forth. Uh, and then I presented it to the executive committee on a day that will live in infamy, at least in my mind, uh, July 15, 1983. And Maxine Graham, who was on my team at the time, uh, head of marketing communications for the division, and she later joined my independent business group, she had been on Apple's values committee. 
And values, remember, I'm going back to the flying club that I started. We had values when we started. And she says, in addition to doing the typical profit loss balance sheet kind of analysis of the alternatives of what to do with the product line, uh, we should also compare it to Apple's values. And Apple's values included things like good management. It included uh, innovation. It included teamwork. It included uh, having empathy for your customer. And of course, our customers were not only the end users, but they were also the dealers and the distributors worldwide. So the turning point of the meeting is after I finished my presentation arguing for a uh, independent business unit group if they allow the product to continue. Uh, so that was one of the options. And uh, that included understanding that we will continue to market, sell, support, service, develop the product so long as people continue to buy it. And then when people stopped buying it, that's when we would do an end of life and protect the investment of those that were loyal to us to buy the product in the first place. Uh, and the other, another one of the five options we laid out is you know, shut the thing down, just like the executive committee had done in Pahara Dunes a couple, three weeks earlier. So Floyd Kwame, who uh, was then the executive vice president of marketing and sales, he later went on. As, an, as a venture capitalist at Kleiner Perkins, which was one of the preeminent VC firms in, in the world. And later was a technology advisor to George W. Bush, President George W. Bush. So Floyd said to me, um, if we pick the option of shutting the product line down, or if we pick the option to let the market decide, and you get a call from a dealer, what would you say? I said, if you pick the option to let the market decide, I'll tell the dealer you continue to sell it and support it. We'll do the same until the market decides uh, because the market is much smarter than any of us. And for that matter, is a lot smarter than a lot of the MBAs at Apple at the time that were advocating to shut the product line down. Uh, I would uh, tell them that and just continue uh, marketing, selling it, developing it, and so supporting it. Uh, but if you make the decision to uh, shut the product line down right now, I'll give the dealer your phone number, Floyd. And the executive committee laughed because they knew that that was directly conflicting with the values of good management, of empathy for the customer, of teamwork, of entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. uh, and so then they asked me a week later if I would take over the product line. I did. They gave me $4 million as a budget. I could sign for up to $200,000 without anybody else asking any questions or co-signing on it. I uh, hired uh, 17 people. And we went out and sold uh, 25,000 Apple Threes, generated about $600 million in profits, enough money wow. to keep about 1,000 to 1,500 Apple employees employed. And then when the Apple II group decided they weren't going to have anything to do with the Apple III anymore, and we are only down to a couple thousand Apple Threes, uh, we decided to throw in the towel, cancel the product on the same day that the Apple to C was introduced. So uh, Wall Street would not notice. The stock price was not affected. Uh, and we uh, converted. Uh, I handed off all 500 of my third-party developers and hardware uh, developers to Guy Kawasaki on the Macintosh uh, team. So that all the Very data, familiar with him. <laughs> so all the data that people had developed on their Apple Threes could be moved over to the Mac and they wouldn't lose anything because the data was the most important thing. Yeah, I mean, one one thing, uh, David, um, with the history of like Apple, there's there's a huge myth about Apple, right? And I would like you to like shed some light on it. Um, most people, most uh, gurus are in, and and even experts think that Apple does not <laughs> does not do any kind of market testing, anything like that. You know, it's it's just. Uh, it, it, it was always like uh, Steve Jobs way or no way, right? And he wouldn't really care for any any consumer opinion. And you just said that one of the values of Apple was being empathetic to the consumer, you know? So uh, what's your thought on that? Like, wh what's your thought on that myth that Apple never tests any, any products uh, with the consumers or does any kind of surveys or market research or anything like that? Well, we did a lot. When I was there, there was 40 people in our corporate market research department wow. responsible for doing consumer research. And one of the things that they found, for example, on the Lisa product, uh, is that the positioning of the product as being integrated software meant absolutely nothing to the 
uh, IT or MIS departments, as they were called back then. Yeah. But it could uh, do an overhead transparency. Uh, anyone could do an overhead transparency, whereas before you had to go to a graphic department in your company and have them do your slides, do your overhead transparencies or your 35 yeah. million slides. And the thing sold for $10,000. It was a super deal to replace the order ball on a uh, selectric typewriter just to do overhead transparencies. So is the wrong positioning. And the people that did that market research by actually going out and talking to prospective customers and the customers that bought the product, like IBM and uh, Southern um, uh, San Jose, where the Winchester disk drive was invented, bought a bunch of them just for that, for presentation purposes. Uh, but the senior people of Apple, led by Steve Jobs, did not want to believe that. They thought they were smarter than what the market is. Uh, but Steve famously said, we can't uh, ask a customer what they want or what they need. And he's right, because if you know what you want or what you need, you have completely figured out what it is the problem is that you have, and you have figured out the solution, and you have figured out how to properly articulate that solution. Most people can't do that. But they can tell you what their problems are. They can tell you what they do. Uh, and Steve uh, was known as hiding behind a bush in Palo Alto on University Avenue across the street from the Apple store at the time, just observing people lined up to get into the store to buy an iPhone. So he was a keen observer of human behavior. Uh, another example of that is uh, uh, there's a story, I don't know if it's true or not, that um, uh, someone, uh, that Henry Ford, the inventor of the mass produced automobile, uh, asked people in Dearborn, Michigan, uh, would they like to have a car? And they said, of course, they had no idea what a car is. So why do I want a car? They said, I just want a faster horse. Well, if he had more just, horses. Yeah, faster horses. Because yeah. they wanted to get from point A to point B faster. They wanted yeah. to uh, 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 move their their uh, materials on their horse-driven carts faster. Um, and with that in mind, then doing a mechanical horse, the Model T, made a whole lot of sense. Now, there's a, a corollary to that. And uh, it's one of the big problems we have today with social media is it's all built on a computer science uh, department uh, notion of wisdom of the crowds coming out of Stanford. Yep. And early Google said that if more people click on this link than this other link, this link is more relevant and more salient. And therefore, that's the proper answer. Completely, even to this day, ignoring for the fact that people are 10 times more prone to spread misinformation and lies uh, and falsehoods than they are to spread the truth. Mm -hmm. So it became a fabulous tool for Facebook, uh, Twitter, and uh, uh, YouTube, and also Google to help spread uh, lies and uh, falsehoods, which the Russians picked up on in uh, 2014. And a Russian general even presented a paper, you can find it on the internet, where he says, we have learned how to uh, militarize uh, the uh, social media. And in fact, that's what they did in a number of elections from 2014 on, including our presidential election in 2016. So uh, the, in order to understand what it is that your customer wants to do, uh, don't be like someone uh, that goes into a, a nightclub and a fire catches starts and try to exit the same door that everybody else is trying to exit at exactly the same time. That's an example of the wisdom of the crowds. And also back then, if uh, the internet existed and someone wanted to define their product based upon what keywords or problems people have that they're searching for solutions on, and he looked at the uh, analytics of how many people were searching for car or for automobile, he would have found that uh, nobody Zero. was searching. Zero. Zero. <laughs> so therefore, there's no market for a car or for an automobile. But the way you get around this is understand what it is that your customer does. Actually, one, one uh, analogy I would like to use is like, you know, when you, when you do any kind of research, uh, you have to really even understand the 
the parameters or even the type of question you're asking because oh, yeah. your, even your question might be biased you know for example you know if you ask um, a thousand people or a million people a, a very simple question right do you recycle I can tell you without even doing the test, I'll tell you overwhelmingly 99.9% .9 of people will say, I, yes, I do recycle, right? It, and that's not the right answer. That's not the right, right answer. Because the thing is, it's more, there is an emotional aspect to that question. There's a moral aspect to the question. So whether the person uh, recycles or not, they will always give you the answer that you are looking for, right? The best way to do it is you actually set up a camera on Sunday night, when all the recycling needs to get picked up, you see, you see if they are recycling at, even in their homes. And in that case, you, at least now you're going to get a truthful data to, to determine that do people actually recycle, for instance, right? That's just a very simple, it's a very simple test, right? That, that's why even asking a lot of marketers, what they do is they, when they send out um, survey monkey, uh, you know, emails to, to their to their customers and to their prospects or to their panel or whatever. The question, the way they they position the question, they, they position it so it does not hurt their position in the company. So the question to start with is biased. So the answers that you're giving them, there's no way for the person to say, no, your company sucks, your product sucks, this is horrible. Uh, the, the lid comes off, the top comes off, it spills all over my fridge. It doesn't allow you to give you give that sort of a thought. It's more like, hurrah, hurrah, we're great. We're still great. Look, we just ran a survey to 10,000 people. 10,000 people said that we're amazing. So why are you failing in the marketplace? <laughs> yeah, very much so. I, I learned how to write surveys in uh, journalism school at Michigan uh, back when I was doing the interdisciplinary uh, engineering program. And then I did a nationwide survey on student attitudes towards uh, science and technology, which I testified before Congress on uh, at that point in time. And then later, when I was running Al Quie's, uh gubernatorial campaign, uh, my pollster was a guy by the name of Roger Ailes. Uh, Roger went on from there about 10 years later and started Fox News. Uh, and he was able to do a poll for me of a uh, telephone uh, uh, survey, 20, 200 people in northern Minnesota, 200 people in central Minnesota, 200 people in southern Minnesota. Southern Minnesota was predominantly agricultural economy based. Northern Minnesota was mining. So the attitudes towards each of the salient issues, taxes, environment, uh, uh, business climate, uh, energy, and things like that were different in each of the different regions. But I had my messages all lined up in terms of radio ads, TV ads, uh, speakers bureau that would go out and talk to the Rotary Club or the Chamber of Commerce or that kind of thing, uh, such that, and, uh, and newspaper ads and magazine ads, such that based upon the feedback I was getting from the polls that Roger was running, I could change the messaging. And when I took over with three weeks left to go in the campaign, we were 20 points behind and we won by 10 points. So that gives you an idea of how important it is to listen to what your customer wants to do. And, and that experience in polling and in surveys, which I recommend follows interviewing a uh, set of people, maybe 20 to 80 people, and that follows acting like a social anthropologist where you just observe human behavior. And the example of that we had in Minnesota, there was a, a Dr. Luther Gerlach, a social anthropologist at the University of Minnesota, was trying to understand why the farmers, which owed the CPA, UPA, the Cooperative Power Association, of, uh, uh, which was the rural electric uh, utility, why they were opposing the construction of a power line from North Dakota, a coal-fired plant near the coal mines in strip mines in North Dakota, to the Twin Cities. Well, if you look at a map, they ran diagonally. And if you look at a map, the streets and farms were laid out north, south, east, and west. So if the power line was run over a farm and usually bisected it diagonally, rendering the uh, uh, irrigation equipment useless. So it wasn't that they were afraid of the electromagnetic waves from the DC power line, 
those were excuses of why you don't want this in your own backyard. Uh, uh, they were covering up for the fact that economically they're going to be decimated. So when we started recommending that they run the lines uh, uh, from west to east and then from north to south along the existing right-of-ways along the roads, the opposition uh, disappeared uh, and uh, or put the power lines higher so that the uh, irrigation systems could operate underneath them. But it was truly amazing that the board of directors of those two co-ops didn't bother to go out and talk to their customers, their owners, in order to design the thing so it be, would be um, acceptable uh, to the land that it was going to transverse. And we see that over and over again. People, uh, developers trying to drive projects down people's throats without first talking to the people that are going to be affected by it. Yeah. Now, in, in the book, um, you talk about many, many lessons and, and uh, given your rich <laughs> career, right? Very rich career of lessons that you have learned. I, I, I actually term it uh, deep scars on your back, you know, because, uh, you know, if it succeeded, you patted yourself on the back. Sometimes those paths hurt because you have pretty deep scars from the previous things that happened, you know. Uh, but but the thing is, you live and learn, and over time, hopefully, you know, you have learned enough to think, make uh, smarter decisions in future. You know, uh, so given the fact that you, you cover, I think it's about thirty-seven different lessons in the book, right? Uh, what are like? Let's uh, if if you want to give a taste to the audience, like maybe uh, three to five different examples with lessons that you could share uh, with the audience, that would be great. Well, the first thing is understanding what your customer wants to do, which I've mentioned several times before. Uh, and that is part of what I call the product market strategy. And that's the S in SPICE uh, for the, my company's name, SPICE Catalyst. And the strategy consists of starting with understanding what your customer wants to do, then using design thinking and innovation, coming up with a better way uh, faster, better, cheaper, higher quality with style for them to get that thing done. Uh, and then doing your competitive research, your market research, which then results in your value proposition, why the customer should buy uh, this product. Uh, and the most important thing I think a product manager does is the uh, product positioning. Uh, where in the shelf space of the mind does that product uh, fit? Uh, and then going on from there with your pricing strategy, your distribution strategy, your support service and training strategy, uh, your actual pricing based upon those strategies, uh, and then passing that along to your uh, product marketing people or your marketing people, which they could then use for the messaging. Uh, they will have found that when you write your product market strategies uh, personas as to who's going to buy the product, they will have found uh, where those people live. What media do they consume? So then the marketing person could pick the, the, the media, uh, the message, and the mix. Uh, and then lastly, uh, the end of life. So all of that should be studied. Take uh, three to six uh, months to get it done. Uh, if you try to go to market and try to uh, develop the product before you do that, chances are you're repeating a key mistake advocated by some venture capitalists here uh, where I'm at, uh, which is in Silicon Valley, and that is ready, uh, fire, aim. Uh, well, that's a sure uh, reason for failure. It should always be ready, aim, fire, and the product market strategy lets you uh, aim properly, at least going in the, a close direction as to where you'll have a successful product. Is there, a, David, is there a uh, scenario, like I'll give you an example, where you do everything right, however, you're way ahead of your time? Uh, I'll okay. give you an example. And and the, it, it's very ironic. I actually ended up in the same building, physical building, where this the story I'm going to tell you, because uh, my, my, my company that I was with actually took over that building after the other company collapsed. Um, and um, in the... In the first dot-com boom, you had a company called Webvan, if you remember. Webvan. Grocery distribution. Grocery delivery to consumers, right? And and their their downfall was like delivering, uh, not being able to deliver ice cream uh, in, in summer, you know? So I'm, I'm exaggerating, but you get my point. 
But that was the first iteration. It failed. They shut down. Uh, they burned through so much capital. Uh, the company shut down. It, it failed the attempt. It was gone. But now the current iteration of the same company, if you see it, uh, Amazon has a version of it with Amazon Fresh. You have Instacart that's very successful, especially during COVID, became ultra successful because of it. Uh, you have a, a company called um, Gold Belly. Gold Belly, you place your order uh, from any restaurant around the United States that they'll deliver the food to you, right? So Webvan, even though they did everything they could given at that time, and they were way ahead of their time, right? That they were at least 10 years ahead of, 10, 15 years ahead of Instacart and Gold Belly, and it didn't work. Even though they did, uh, from my view, everything they may have done right. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Like timing the market and and... Uh, understanding is the market ready uh, for this kind of an evolution? There's a, there's a fellow up in San Francisco uh, who is a, a manufacturing engineer at IBM on the IBM PC Junior at the same time that I was uh, the division uh, business unit manager or bum for the Apple III uh, product line. And uh, he studied the outcome-based innovation books that a professor at Harvard wrote. I think he wrote like a half a dozen of them. Uh, and he wrote a book called uh, Jobs to be Done. So a person buys products and services in order to get a job done. Uh, and he found that if you can't find 15 unmet needs, then the wind, and I, I've added to that, therefore I say the window of opportunity has not opened up for you in that marketplace. So when Webvan came out, if I recall, it was in the 90s, early 90s, like 93 or so, uh, there was not a, a, an unmet need of having groceries delivered to your home. People were perfectly happy going uh, to the store and touching it like their produce and not let someone else make those decisions. And it wasn't obviously until COVID that home grocery delivery uh, really uh, took off. In fact, I go into a Whole Foods here now, probably one fourth of all the shoppers are uh, Whole Food Amazon employees uh, picking uh, the products that have been ordered for home delivery. People realized that they would have a time savings. So one of the things they wanted to do was to save time. Another thing they wanted to do was avoid going into the store and getting sick. Uh, so the primary failure of Webvan, and it was backed by some major venture capitalists, and also I think there was a major uh, uh, consulting firm, you know, like McKenzie or Arthur Anderson Consulting or something like that. They again thought they were smarter than the market and did not discover the 15 unmet needs. So you should not come out with a product until you've identified those 15 unmet needs. Uh, and it's not like I'm any smarter than them because I invented, according to RCN News, uh, advertising on a cell phone and shipped the first one in uh, 2003. Uh, at a time, nobody wanted advertising on their cell phone. Uh, so my, in Steve Jobs' words, my company, uh, Maui Games, uh, flopped up the, onto shore like a dead fish. But if I had waited five years, uh, until the iPhone came out uh, with a decent operating system to be able to intelligently display ads, uh, I would be successful. Uh, a couple, three years ago, I looked it up. I don't know what it is today, but that zero market of cell phone advertising in 2003 is now over $15 billion a year being spent on cell phone advertising. And I did not know that concept of waiting until I could identify 15 unmet needs. Similarly, if most of those unmet needs that you started the product with and you can't expand the product uh, or drop its price to fulfill additional unmet needs, then that tells you when you should um, end the life of the product and protect the investment of your customers. I mean, do you also believe that, uh, you know, creating the roadmap, right? It's not something we want to create today, David, maybe down the line, iPhone 21 is going to have this feature, not iPhone 10, not 11, not 12, not 14, right? iPhone 21 is going to have that feature in there because by then 
the, the market would have uh, caught up with that thing that we are we are trying to bring on. And just to comment on earlier what you said about your 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 mobile ads business, right? That's flopped, right? I can tell you in e-commerce because that's that's the vein I'm in uh, right now in 2022. And thanks a lot to the COVID pandemic, mobile traffic to e-commerce sites you know, re represents 70 to 80 percent of traffic for e-commerce sites, 70 to 80 percent. And and, the, uh, you know, brands like uh, Google and ad platforms like Google, Amazon and, and Facebook uh, and Microsoft succeed at delivering those through their apps, through their experiences and stuff like that, that they that they do. So if your company existed in 2022, it, it would it would be skyrocketing right now. Yeah. If I started in, in time, uh, yeah. another good example of that is Uber. Uh, Travis, uh, that started the company, lived in L.A. at the time. And uh, I don't know if you ever experienced uh, trying to order a cab over the phone in Los Angeles. Uh, frequently. No, Los Angeles, New York. Same. Uh, it was a nightmare in the 90s. Yeah. Typically, the cab would not show up. Yep. And then you call them and they say, oh, it's on its way. And, and, you know, an hour or two later, they may or may not show up. So with the advent of the technology of the smartphone, the ability to play the middleman between the uh, uh, driver-owned car, so you didn't have to have the capital uh, to, to buy the medallion for the cab, uh, and being able to track where the car is. And, and, and one of the lovely things is, you know, at the end of a uh, taxi cab ride, you're futzing around in your pocket trying to find enough cash to pay for the ride and leave a tip. Uh, or uh, you try to get the credit card to work uh, or, you know, or they would write it down on, a, you know, one of their little credit card mechanical machines. And, and sometimes uh, they would get stiffed. So all those problems were solved. All those things that people wanted to do were solved uh, with the Uber app and with the uh, with the Lyft app. Uh, but uh, I don't know about your experience in, in the 90s in New York. I wasn't there, but I had uh, offices in uh, New York City in the 80s uh, after I left Apple. Uh, and of course, I mentioned earlier, I was in Washington, D.C. for several years. There, if you just you know, scratch your nose, 10 cabs would pull up. Uh, so it was really easy to find a cab on any main street in those cities. Uh, if Travis lived there, he probably would not have observed that problem of marrying uh, a vehicle and a driver with a person that wants to go from point A to point B. Yeah, I mean, but also there are, I mean, especially with Uber, uh, the challenges with being a, uh, you know, of being a person of color, for example, and being not being able to, I think it was Lawrence, Lawrence uh, Fishburne, you know, one of the famous actors, right? Uh, he tried to hail a cab, you know, and the cabs wouldn't want to stop for him. And he's a famous guy, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if it was him or somebody else. I don't want to mix it up. But uh, it, but being a per person of color, it, it would be very difficult. But when you're using an app, it's a lot easier because it's already prepaid. It's already you're getting picked up from point A to get to point B. Um, you know, all the issues related to, uh, you know, credit cards, cash. This Actually, it, it's funny, David. I've done the opposite of it. I got so used to taking Uber and Lyft, right? Uh, I, I think I was traveling somewhere. Uh, I, I got a cab, but once I was inside, I, don't, I didn't remember because I was busy on the phone or something like that. The, the, the cab person took me, the cab driver got me to my destination and I was trying to like leave because that's what you do with Uber and Lyft because you already prepaid for it. There's no need for doing anything. He was like, hey, buddy, you, are you going to pay? I'm like, oops. <laughs> and then I took my credit card out and swiped it, you know. How long ago was this? Uh, this was a couple of years ago, maybe. About, uh, I mean, now it would be about four or five years ago, roughly. How did you call the cab? No, no, this was at an airport. I got picked up from the airport. I took a cab to take me to my client's uh, location. They took me. But in my head, once I was inside the car, I thought that I was in an Uber, right, or a Lyft. When I got to my destination, I wanted to just walk out. I didn't mean to. But it was like, hey, buddy, you going to pay me? I was like, oops, yeah, it's a cab. This is not an Uber. So I, I took my credit card out and I swiped it. Well, what they should do is put a QR code on the back of the front seat. Just like in some restaurants, I don't know about where you are in New York, but here in California, 
a number of restaurants have a QR code. Oh, on, for the menu. No, no, for the receipt. Oh, for the receipts. Okay. And you, you scan it with your uh, phone and, and pay for it that way without having to pull out a credit card. That's very uh, useful, definitely. Yeah. And I've always wondered, uh, one of these days I might look it up, is if the taxi cab industry has finally come up with an app uh, like the Uber app or the Lyft app. Yeah, definitely. Well, one one uh, one thought I had. I actually can't. I love innovation, and I love uh, companies that innovate, and especially startups and stuff like that. I remember a company. And this was a while ago. This is before Hulu, right? Before Hulu existed, before you had uh, Verizon Live TV or anything like that. Didn't exist any of that stuff. You always you either got it through cable, uh, cable TV, your TV uh, delivery, or you got you you had a TiVo that you connected to your either your antenna or your cable TV to TiVo your programming and, and record it for you. There was a startup that came about, I think it was based here in Long Island City in New York. Uh, the company was called uh, Aero TV, A-E-R-O TV, right? And when you come up with a product like that, that's so innovative. I mean, this is another kind of, a, I don't know if there's a lesson or, or, or something here. They came up with it. I love the idea. I don't have to get storage. Like I don't have to buy, I don't have to buy uh, uh, TiVo, right? I don't have. I can just go on a portal. I can schedule the the programming that I want to record. They would record it for me on the platform. I just had an app that I would just access and look at all my programming. Because one of the challenges, you know, you're talking about the uh, unmet needs or needs that you need to. They actually checked off a lot of things in my book, right? I didn't need to have a physical storage, right? I didn't need to keep on upgrading my storage on TiVo uh, or TiVo-like devices, right? I, I didn't need to have my TV on. I didn't need to do any of those kind of things. They would, I, I could just select whatever programming I needed. They would record it and, and I would just access it at my own time. Perfect, time shifting, perfect. It works for me, right? And then what happened was I think a lot of the, uh, uh, you know, cause it was supposed to be over the air TV, Right. So antenna TV, that's what they allowed. That's the service they were providing. Apparently, they didn't have the rights to intercept those airwaves and, and then allow you to record those kind of things. I guess, you know, that they, they I don't know if they check those things out. And a lot of the TV stations and companies like I, I don't know if, if they were together or whatever, like NBC, Fox, CBS, uh, so on and so forth. Whoever does, uh, you know, over over the air, you know, OTA. Uh, they, I think, sued them out of existence, and and the company was shut down. Great idea. And then two, three years later, then I started seeing things like Hulu, <laughs> Verizon Live TV. Like it was not an issue anymore. It was an issue for that company that was innovating, and it died, right? And then, but they, but they proved that there are consumers who are looking for that kind of service, and and they were being successful at that time. Right. And they were getting into other markets and stuff like that. And they were setting up these gigantic antennas that would consume the content and allow you to kind of store it on their end. And then you could watch it any, on your own time. So yeah, in that scenario, what are your thoughts on that, on that kind of a scenario? That's like technologically a cloud based storage and uh, of media retrieval, uh, for uh, uh, video. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. So YouTube has been doing that since the uh, the nineties, uh, but uh, but YouTube TV that, didn't exist though at that time. When right. this company existed, Arrow TV, YouTube TV didn't exist. YouTube TV is relatively a newer concept, you know. Uh, but the fascinating one of the fascinating things about all of that is uh, Facebook uh, uh, and uh, Google and others uh, uh, media aggregators tend to refuse to pay the media creators. And that's a big reason why uh, overwhelming majority of daily uh, local newspapers have gone out of business. They've lost the readership and also the advertising revenue, which is gravitated towards the internet. Mm -hmm. So um, the industry had it one way on the text side and a different way on the video side. Um, and then, of course, now they'll protect it because you got all these different streaming services, Hulu, YouTube, uh, TV. Uh, Google has TV service, too. Yeah. 
Google, Apple TV, uh, yeah. Amazon Prime, and so forth. Uh, uh, and, and now you want to go watch something, you have to figure out which one of these things it's on, and then you have to figure out how to sign into it. And of course, there's always login problems. So, you know, Disney Plus and Paramount Plus and uh, uh, MSNBC and so forth. Um, uh, so, there is no CNN Plus, though, David. It just went away. <laughs> they started it, the new president came in and killed it. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, uh, so it's shifting the topic a bit more, you know, you, you build insanely great products, right? You, um, but the thing is then the world or mother nature throws its wrench, right? It says that, Hello, you forgot me. I'm, I'm in the room too. Things like the pandemic, uh, you, you have supply chain issues because people are getting sick and they cannot go to their factories, you know? Uh, then you have uh, wars brewing everywhere and wars happening in, you know, in a lot of different places. Um, uh, there's a shortage of ingredients, of components and stuff like that. As a product manager, how do you manage uh, through that, those kinds of uh, situations? You know, when, when you have these kind of things that are like worldwide uh, pandemics and epidemics and uh, wars and stuff like that, how do you manage uh, through those kind of uh, ordeals? It's not like that's those are things not under your control. It's called planning. Uh, when you put together your product market strategy, you also look at uh, the, the perfect storms that are forming, which are those kinds of major things. Uh, and uh, you look at those, and I'll come back to that in a moment, but you're looking for the social economic, political, environmental, and technical changes that might occur. And so you project them and sort of war game it out. What would the impact of that change be on my business? Uh, I've identified about 15 uh, perfect storm things that are happening. Uh, and I did that uh, about five or six years ago. And one that I did not have on there was pandemic. Uh, but Bill Gates knew that. Uh, he predicted that, like in 2015. Yeah, I so, watched that speech. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's things like um, uh, uh, climate change, artificial intelligence, uh, DNA splicing, uh, uh, things like that that will have significant impacts on the success of products and the success of companies. Look at uh, Hurricane Ian down in uh, Florida, uh, a community about 15 miles north uh, east of Fort Myers uh, survived that hurricane virtually unscathed because when they started rebuilding the community in the, uh, two decades ago after the last hurricane, uh, they improved their uh, building standards to withstand the wind. Now, they didn't have to deal with uh, uh a storm surge like uh, Fort Myers Beach had to deal with. Um, and they put in solar. Uh, the entire community is powered by uh, solar panels. So uh, they planned ahead and they were virtually unscathed. And as uh, Bill Maher said in his uh, comedy uh, HBO Plus uh, last week, he says, all right, in Florida, who's in charge of the building standards? Well, it turns out it was community by community. Uh, not following building standards makes it cheaper to, uh, to build the house. And then the rest of us through our taxes have to pick up the difference. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I mean, what, um, but you know, if that's well, planning is one part of it, right? Especially if you have gone through the experience, like in the Florida example, right. But how do you uh, anticipate certain things like, you know, um, I guess you can you can do planning of like different suppliers, right? If your suppliers and your resources, your entire dev team is in Ukraine, and Russia is tell, telling the world that they're I'm not I'm not going to take over I'm not take over, taking over on Friday, and Saturday morning the war starts. You know I don't know if that was the timeline. It, to me, it seemed like it was right right next uh, next day basically. So uh, in in that kind of a scenario, because some businesses they don't do that, they they focus on. Oh, you know what? I'm very happy with my current supplier. That's the line you hear from them, right? And then what happens when when that supplier has issues delivering 
the components, not because of war. It could be other reasons too. Maybe the on their side, the, you know, their supplier got pissed at them for some reason, you know, and and now now you're stuck down the line because you need to use that one component. Uh, what, what are your advice uh, on that uh, sort of a situation where, you know, when especially when you're product managing and and you've managed one of the the biggest projects in the world, you know, especially with your Apple experience. How do you manage that? You know, do you keep one supplier, or how how many how many suppliers did you have for the same component? Have you ever heard of uh, Sir Arthur Clarke? Uh, Arthur Clarke, he was the author of the short story Two Thousand and One: A Space Odyssey. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was I was going through my brain and going like that sounds very familiar to me. Yeah. And he invented the concept of a satellite in nineteen forty eight. Uh, science uh, fiction writer. Uh, he wrote uh, a series of three books around the Rama civilization called Rendezvous with Rama. And they, their home planet, I think in his book, failed. So they built three uh, spaceships, which were cylinders that were rotating such 1G gravity was on the outside of the cylinder. And the entire civilization was with, you know, within the cylinder. And uh, so they built three of these and all the critical systems on the Ramian spaceships were in threes. So the fuel cells were in threes, the water systems were in threes, the electrical systems, sewage systems and so forth. Uh, uh, the Apollo mission to the moon adopted that notion. So there was three fuel cells, three electrical systems and so forth on the Apollo spacecraft such that when, for example, Apollo 13 occurred and one of the fuel cells exploded, they had a primary fuel cell to keep them alive and a secondary fuel cell as an additional backup. So I always say uh, do things in, in threes, and that way you've got defense in depth uh, and you're more successful. Uh, related to that, um, U.S. Um, Culture is to only do things serially, one thing at a time. And uh, we always get into trouble because we try something and it fails, and now we've missed the window for the market. Uh, the Japanese do things in a series. Uh, in between my product management role for uh, the hard disk drive uh, and going over to the Apple III group, uh, I was the mass storage planning manager uh, for Apple. And all of the, there was 98 hard disk drive manufacturers at the time. And I talked to maybe about 20 or 30 of them. They would come in and present their, their wares. And I would say to them that I need a three and a half inch uh, format because the Sony floppy drive that Steve picked for the Macintosh was three and a half inches. And the reason he picked it is because if you put a five and a quarter inch floppy in your pocket, uh, it wouldn't fit in your pocket. It would fit in your back pocket, and then you'd yeah. forget it's there and sit on it, and all your data is destroyed. Yeah. But the, the width of a shirt pocket is three and a half inches. So that's where that came from. What is it that people do? Um, uh, the American manufacturers would come in with uh, uh, five and a half inch, uh, three and three quarter inch, three <laughs> inch, that kind of thing. I said, no, I want three and a half inch. I don't want anything else. I want three and a half inch. I remember one uh, Japanese supplier, it might have been Sony, uh, came in, who ended up getting the contract for the hard drive on, on the Macintosh Plus. Uh, they came in and they laid out on the table uh, three inch, three and a quarter, three and a half, three and three quarters, four, four and a quarter, four and a half, four and uh, three quarters, and five inch hard drives. And said, which one do you want? I said, do all of these work? And they said, yes, they do. I, I kind of doubted that. But they were testing what the market wanted to do. And they would develop things in parallel, like Arthur C. Clarke's uh, Rambians. Do things in parallel. Therefore, <clears throat> when the window of opportunity opens up, you're going to be there with a the product or you're going to be there with a service. But if you don't and you go serially, uh, uh, the chances are you're going to get into trouble. Uh, I just read today that Apple has uh, certified two more suppliers from Vietnam. They now have 25 suppliers in Vietnam for Apple products. Uh, and uh, as many people have read, uh, they started manufacturing iPhones in India and in Brazil. 
So uh, they're, as fast as they possibly can, are weaning themselves from the political instability that China may raise uh, in the future. That's definitely uh, a smart thing to do. So, David, you know, you uh, have have dropped so much knowledge here, especially with the history and and uh, and the advice on on uh, project I mean product management. What what is your number one? Given your incredible career, you know, what is your number one? Um, you know, hundred thousand dollar expert insight into product management. Understand what it is your customer wants to do, why they want to do it. When do they want to do it? Where do they want to do it? How do they want to do it? What's standing in their way? How important is that thing to them to do it? And even more important than that is how satisfied are they with the current solution? And the combination of importance and satisfaction gives you uh, an ability to ascertain what feature sets you need to develop first, second, and third. And if you do that, then you'll have a successful product or service. Uh, that's well said, David. I, mean, I want to remind the audience to pick up this book, Building Insanely Great Products. It's available on Amazon. I love audiobooks, so th- thank you, David. By the way, you're the one who narrates the book, I believe, uh, on, on Audible. Yeah, I, I, I started listening to it, and it's a really great book. Uh, it's available on Kindle, if that's how you consume it, or paperback, whichever formats that, that you would like to consume it in is on Amazon.com. Uh, David, thank you for being on the show, and I really appreciate you appearing on the show and and dropping your wisdom here. Uh, Thanks for putting up with me. (laughs) And uh, thank you, audience. Uh, Whether you caught it live or you are listening to it on on a recording, um, uh, please visit, uh, definitely visit um, uh, David at uh, uh, SpiceCatalyst.com and uh, check out his website and uh, and. As far as uh, this week with Severe goes, we have a lot of other guests, great guests like David coming up uh, soon, you know, and starting also next week. So stay tuned and uh, thank you for tuning in.